0: Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at the wonderful world of wine. Our program is supported by Franklin Public Radio. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to the wonderful world of wine. How are you, Kim? I'm great. How are you, Mark? You should be great. So I'm this awesome. Is, this is uh, <laughs> I'm better than great. <laughs> I've been waiting for this episode. Oh, Kim, yay. as everybody knows, we are always talking that Kim is the bubbly queen and king of sparkling wines. Oh, I shouldn't say king, queen of sparkling wines. I could be the king. <laughs> and uh she had the opportunity to go to champagne. France. And we are going to talk all about it, Kim, with our listeners. I have so much to ask you. Welcome back. Welcome home. Thank you. Thank you. I stalked you and followed all your... Oh, your everybody did. On. It was wonderful.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I still have a few more pictures that I probably should share with people. But I had a wonderful time. It was an educator trip. So it was a group of 14 people from all over the world. But for this was a, an English-speaking group that we went for a number of days to learn about different aspects of champagne and then come back home to our home market and spread that education.
0: So for our listeners, this was a business trip this was a business trip. To be educated on champagne, which you, I mean, it's an update for Kim. I know you've been to France before, correct? Mm -hmm. But have you ever gone to champagne before?
1: I have. This was actually my second time in champagne. Um, So the first time I went was right before the pandemic hit. So it was late fall, 2019. We went in November. Just remember being so cold, (laughs) so cold down in the cellars. Champagne is typically a very, very wet region, which I don't think a lot of people know. It doesn't really rain in the summertime, but the fall and the winter and early spring is very rainy. So it was, yeah, it was raining for a lot of the time that we were there. It was cold, but not as cold as here. And I was surprised to see that like the flowers were probably three weeks to a month ahead of where we are here. So like they already had daffodils and tulips and phacelia, and we don't get there until like late April. So it was very interesting to see the difference in the climate just between home in central france
0: well before we get deeper into that you flew to where paris flew to paris and that was about how long i i, I need all the little
1: It was a six, six and a half hour flight. So I took the red eye, went overnight and then got in early in the morning. And then a group of us all met up at the airport. And then it's about a it's a 45 minute train ride from Paris to Champagne. So it's actually not that far away from the city. But as everyone, I'm sure, has been seeing from the news, there is a lot of strikes going on. It started with the transportation unions and now it's kind of all over the place with some of the policies that Macron has has started to put in place. So there was a train strike. So I I couldn't actually ride the train from Charles de Gaulle to to Champagne. So it was about an hour by car. So really not that far. You know, if you think that the difference between Paris is the same as between down here in Franklin and getting to Boston, that's
0: not very far. And it's from Paris to Champagne it's northeast correct um going more north more or straight like across just east, east like just east. a little
1: bit northeast but
0: east-ish, yeah and you mentioned the rain and the the weather it's mm-hmm. champagne is famous because it is the most northern wine growing region in France so they always right. have to put up with that type yep. of weather so it um, really
1: is on that grape growing limit so it's always on the cooler side than a lot of other places
0: I was curious if you hit all that strike and, and stuff like that. Yeah, so. yeah it,
1: it, it impacted our travel. I had friends who were staying on who needed to take the train to other places in Europe. And that was going to prove difficult for a few oh, people. Wow.
0: Yeah. So your overall impression of the people of the region, were they still as friendly with all this going on? Or
1: Oh, yeah, it was yeah. wonderful. It really was. People are friendly. And I think that I've seen in a lot of wine growing areas that there's an openness and there's a friendliness and there is this wish to really share what they do. And when you're actually talking to the owners and you're talking to the winemakers and you're talking to the cellar masters, just the guys who this is just their regular job, they get dirty in the cellar and they move bottles around, kind of like us working here in a liquor store. You know, you you do what you have to do and you get dusty and you, you get your hands dirty and you get a bunch of splinters. They're so passionate about their product it's something that they're making with their hands and they really want to share it with you so even if we're talking about big houses that sell at very expensive bottles of wine when you're talking to the people who are making them they're just everyday people like you and me just doing a job and they're very excited to share what they're doing with you so i I just i i love that about wine people that they might be selling a hundred and fifty dollar bottle of champagne but they're wearing ripped jeans and sneakers and baseball hats just like we are
0: yeah She's, and I be honest, Kim, I watch so many champagne documentaries just to keep up with you. <laughs> but I have, so I've, now you just said a few things. I have a million follow-up questions, but you had mentioned about seeing all the flowers this and that. And I kind of wanted to ask you, one of the, the highlights I always see about the region is the soil is this chalky soil. Mm-hmm. Did you see that white chalky soil everywhere you went, where you saw vineyards? Mm-hmm. Is it? that pronounced?
1: When we talk about very special regions like Champagne, we do get very geeky about soil. And someplace special like Champagne, where it is on this limit, one of the reasons why the wines are so special is because they have this unique soil. And a lot of it is, like you say, chalk. So over time, a lot of the cellars have been dug into the chalk uh, underneath, mainly the main city of Reims, which is where we stayed. But you literally... Touch the chalk. If you're walking, even in the street, it's there. And one of the sellers that we went into, you could walk along a hallway and brush your hand across the wall and you would get white clay stuck under your nails like you're a third grader in art class making something out of clay and then the next hallway you can reach up and touch the top part of the wall and someone has carved their initials in and it's a a, next to the the number 1910 in the chalk and it feels Uh like chalkboard chalk like there is all of this textural, like really feeling like it's real when you can put your hands on it and really be like, oh, this is literally chalk that these grapevines are planted in. And it's everywhere. And just like you said, it is absolutely everywhere. So that was one of the big takeaways for me was being able to see all that and feel it and smell it. And it literally smelled like art class <laughs> like downstairs wow. down in some of the cellars. And you really get this idea that, oh, wow, this is what the grapes live in. And this is why they can be so unique here, because we have these soils that don't feel like you're in a garden makes you feel like you're an art class.
0: Now talk about the sellers, because I'm told, you have to verify, there's one like major street where all the major houses, champagne houses, and then that street is just all the cellars of the, the champagne? So there
1: there are a couple of different places throughout the region that the main champagne houses are located. So there are some that are located in the town of Epernay, which is the road that you're talking about is located in Epernay. And then there's Reims, which is the main capital of the region. There's a It's known very well historically because there's a cathedral in the town that a lot of the old kings of France would always be coronated in. So there are plaques everywhere saying all of the the Louis were crowned here and it was hundreds and hundreds of years of French kings being coronated in cathedrals. It's, it's big and it's beautiful. So a lot of the wineries are located in Reims and have these underground cellars that are dug into the chalk, dug into the clay. But then there's this other main road that's located in Epernay that's called like Champagne Road. I forget what it is in French. And that the a lot of the big, big major houses have their headquarters slash wineries slash cellars located on. So like that's where Moet is. And there's the big statue of Dom Perignon that we always put up in our classes when we're talking about champagne. Tattinger has a place and Roterer has a place. And as you drive down this street and you see all of these famous houses and yeah, it's like, it's a very great place to take a lot of pictures.
0: <laughs> yeah, I bet. And I wanted to ask you about, you mentioned history, so much history. A lot of it has to do with the struggles they went through for wars. I mean, it Mm -hmm. was always something going on there with wars. Did you see like that type of history about the battles they put up with? Or or was it more? Yeah, yeah, I mean, is it? Yeah, no,
1: it's still very much in the forefront of a lot of the minds of the people who live there. Because a lot of the people who currently reside in Champaign, their families have been there for a very long time. So there are monuments all over the place to either soldiers who were lost during World War One, or because the region was so devastated by physical battles during World War One that there are a lot of, like, monuments to this was here or this battle took place on such and such a date. It reminded me an awful lot of, like civil war kind of memorials where you have plaques and you're like, so many people died in this battle. And, you know, on this date, in this place, this happened. So that it really did still feel like it was very much in the modern imagination of the town's history. And I think because it's a region that has so much history, memory lasts for a very long time. So yeah, everywhere we went, there was still that reminder of even things that happened over a hundred years ago.
0: And I want to stay on the history. I want want to get to Don Penrione, but before that, I think- (laughs) Guess who we
1: never talked about. Yeah,
0: yeah, that was, I want to get to that. Hold that thought. But first, I think one of the most amazing things about champagne that most people don't probably know is the history of the impact of women in Champagne. And mm-hmm. you must be, as a woman in this field, so proud to tell the stories of the famous women in Champagne and how long ago these women were in charge of these Champagne houses and their contributions to Champagne. Is that something as going there for the education part? Did they focus on that a lot?
1: No, not as much. Really? And I think, huh. but... but uh, one of the reasons I'm maybe I'm just being very optimistic here that maybe it hasn't that we're not focusing on it so much now is because. As so many family wineries are being passed to the next generation, they're being passed to the daughters and not the sons. So we are really seeing this sea change across the wine world, where as the baton is being passed down to the next generation, it is this whole generation of women who are taking over the reins of their family wineries. But that's really how
0: it started. And I mean,
1: right. You- but I'm, say- I'm saying that it's everywhere. Like okay. it's not just in Champagne, but it's in Chianti and it's in Burgundy and it's in Bordeaux and it's in Argentina and it's in California and it's in New York. It's normal now. And so I'm hoping that the normalization of it is maybe the reason why we're not talking about it as much, because it's like, oh, yeah, OK. But you're absolutely right that the history of Champagne is a history of female owners and of uh, barriers that women had to sort of struggle to overcome in order to be the ones in charge at their family businesses. We hear a lot of stories about, okay, so some guy started his, his winery and he passed away and they only had daughters, but the daughter got married. And so technically it went to the son-in-law, but really she was the one running it and kind of like that. But there have been it comes down in champagne lore about all of these innovations that, say, we have from the Widow Clico or that we have from the Tattinger families, which right now is also run by a woman. Their next generation is uh, Vitaly Tattinger, so she is the one who's running their operation. We visited Biakart Salmon and they are seventh generation now and Biakart was him and Salmon was her and they combine their wineries and they combine their names and the rest is history. So there has been been that tradition of female power, I would say, in Champagne. And it is is still very, very, very noticeable.
0: And you talked about Don Perignon. We always say He kind of stole the idea of sparkling wine and brought it. (laughs) Yeah. So there wasn't much focus. No, we really didn't.
1: You know, so I think one of the reasons why maybe we didn't talk about those things is because the folks who were on this trip with me, we were all very high level wine people to begin with. So it's not like they were rolling out those kinds of stories because A, we already knew them and B, we were for like a different type of education than sort of the mythology of champagne. So we talked a lot more about the nitty gritty of research and development into new grape varieties or how are newer methods of pest control and weed control being used. So kind of the dry stuff that maybe isn't super exciting for the public, but as far as sustainability about wineries and wine growing, that was a lot of what we tried to focus on.
0: The whole idea of the trip is educators to come there to get educated. Right. But so is what Champagne trying to get out to educators is that this is what's happening, but did they want you to convey that back or they just want to update educators to know what's going on?
1: I think a little bit of both. Um, one of the things that I appreciated was that I didn't get a lecture about Dom Perignon because they just made the assumption that we already knew all that stuff, which was true because we did already know that stuff. So it was like new stuff for us to add to our arsenal when speaking about champagne. So like we already know about Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, and we learned a little bit more about Pinot Meunier and some of the other grape varieties that are used in smaller quantities for King Champagne's. What else did we talk about? But like, yeah, it was stuff that was kind of new and different to add to all of the stuff that we already know that we can bring back.
0: Right. I'm sure it was like spectacular learning experience. And I have a lot of follow-up questions on a lot you learned.
1: You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we are your hosts, Kim and Mark. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine, and you can find more information about Mark at his website, Franklin Liquors. I can be found at CommonwealthWineSchool.com. Hi, everyone. Mark is questioning me today about my recent trip to Champagne in France. And I am very happy to give the play by play of all of the things that I learned. And he hasn't even asked me about what I
0: ate when I was there yet. Oh, that's on the list. So <laughs> so now, you, now that you mentioned it, you know, I'm not a big foodie, but you are. And I know you you put oh some <laughs> phenomenal pictures of food. So tell the listeners, what did you explore for food? Anything that you've never tried? Yes. Let's I had hear. frog's
1: legs for the first time.
0: Oh, I did see your post on that. They were
1: delicious. That was the now, best dish we had the entire time. Really? We- Yeah. So we had one particularly really, really excellent meal for lunch that uh, there's a champagne house that's actually, they're not a house, they're a co-op. And they've been around for about a hundred years. Their wine, they're called Champagne Palmer. And they started as a little co-op of seven growers who pooled their resources and pooled their grape and made a wine. And a hundred years later, they're really making these really gorgeous wines that are not as easy to find. We do have some of them available in Massachusetts. They brought us out to lunch before we went and did a couple of hours visit at their winery. We had this wonderful dish that was like onion soup with frog's legs and foie gras and Jerusalem artichokes and walnuts. And oh my God, it was so
0: good. (laughs) And it went so well with their
1: wines. Oh, so delicious. I've been thinking about it for my whole life.
0: uh, How do you eat the frog legs? You pick it up like a chicken wing? Yeah, it was like a teeny tiny little chicken leg. Yeah. Small.
1: Small. Very little. Yeah. Like a like a buffalo wing. Only half the size. You just sort of.
0: Some of the classic pairings with champagne. Yeah. You have those.
1: We did. So I did do a lot of foie gras. I really like foie. Um, But we did oysters and champagne one time at lunch. We did a. A really nice comparison tasting between heavier styles of champagne versus lighter styles of champagne, and what do those go better with? So we sort of did a compare and a contrast. Do they go with cheese? Do they go with vegetables? Do they go with meat? Did a whole variety of things like that. So that's something that I'm very excited to bring back to our market and talk to restaurant folks, servers, beverage managers about wine and food pairings for champagne. That it's not just for a party or for a wedding or for a celebration, but you can pair these things really wonderfully with specific dishes or just general dishes because they are very, very food friendly, as I've always talked about. But it was nice to do a variety of styles of champagne with a lot of different food. So we even did champagne with steak. We didn't have a drop of red wine the entire time. Every single thing that we drank was champagne with everything that we ate. So it really did show that this is a way with anything. I mean, if you can put it with skirt steak and potatoes. It was interesting to hear from the winemakers about how the different grape varieties express their uniqueness depending on the the site that they were grown because we have only a few grape varieties that are used in Champagne and yet they can taste very different depending on where they're grown. So when we had lunch with uh, the folks from Champagne Palmer, François Demouy, who was the people who worked there and did a lot of the marketing stuff, really gave us a great oversight about what their Chardonnay tastes like. So take a listen. And 50% of Chardonnay from uh, Cezanne. (laughs) Oh, okay, here's your Cézanne. we were talking about Cézanne. No Brudeblanc at all, which is not usual in Champagne, obviously. (laughs) But you will see that Chardonnay from Montagne de Reims is more uh, citrus-oriented, rather than Mm -hmm. flowers and white flowers and everything. And uh, Cézanne will bring um, exotic touch at the end, especially like... uh, Fried pineapple, mango. which the balance. It's very interesting. We got the cizani, the, 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 what kind of notes it gives? The chardonnay only. On the, no, no. But what kind of flavor, and ah, it's more uh, exotic fruits, <coughs> so okay. like uh, pineapple and mango. And what,
0: because it could be sour or more. The experience just gave you that education or were they focusing on that as an no, education that, so
1: one so the last one where we did a a focused tasting of like Brut Champagne and Blanc de Noir and a non-vintage and let's see what goes best. All the rest of it was sort of our own experience. Like we didn't have a lecture during lunch about try this wine with this dish. It was all just, we were in the moment and we were having our meal and then we just naturally got to enjoy those two things together.
0: You may- mentioned how they were putting this all to you to bring it back and pass it on. It's interesting that champagne has always been a big brand, really. It, the region is yeah. a brand and, and they continue to keep pushing or finding unique ways of getting that brand out there by bringing people like yourself there and showing these new things. It's amazing to me that that was the whole history going back to Champagne Charlie when he came to the United States, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, he got people hooked on Champagne by saying, explore this Beverage. I mean, it's just amazing how they keep doing it. Uh, I love
1: that you brought up that concept of champagne with a big C as a brand because the group that sponsored us and that brought us, they're called the Comité de Champagne. So they are this organization that is in the region that originally was established mostly for research and development. So to help the growers and the producers with the science side of their grape growing winemaking in order to sort of elevate the entire region. So what what is that phrase that high tide lifts all boats? Um, So they were there as this sort of unifying factor that everybody sort of paid a little bit of a fee to. Then they have this research and this development and a, a little bit of marketing. And they've really just started this educational part of it, like in the last couple of decades. So I feel like in a lot of ways, champagne hasn't necessarily needed to have people go out into the world and try to... I don't want to say push their wines because a lot of the big houses have lots of money. And so they have these like brand ambassadors that they hire and that work for them and that go out and be like, hey, you know, let's taste champagne. Let's do all that marketing kind of stuff. But what the interesting thing about the CIVC is, is that they are not focused on any particular producer or any particular house. And they made a point of being like, don't focus on the houses Like don't focus on who the producers are. Let's just focus on the soil, the region, the styles. And so it was much less of like a marketing it for, I think, sales of particular champagnes and more like this is what the region is as a whole. But at one point I brought up that whole idea that you just mentioned that like champagne itself Kind of is this brand. And I've always thought this, that Champagne has done a better job than I feel like any other region, with the exception of Chianti, of making their wines feel like a unified brand. And so it's less about which one are you buying and more about, oh, Champagne. Or, oh, Chianti. Uh, and so they- and this is an extension of that. So as much as they might want to deny, I <laughs> hope they're not listening, that, you know, that champagne, No, oh, champagne's not a brand. It really is a brand. But and it's, an, they- it's a recognizable name that other people in the world want to copy. So, yeah, it absolutely is a brand.
0: Definitely. But uh, are they unified because as a region, they've defined the laws. Mm-hmm. So everybody's playing by the same rules. Rules, right. right. I mean they're so strict that what they grow, the harvest, yeah. you know the So I think a lot of harvest. it is
1: like self-protectionist almost. Like it's the protection of the brand, it's the protection of the name. It kind of goes back to those when we talk about the history of the AOC in France and the DOC in Italy, where it's came about because there was so much misuse of regional names and fraud going on that the producers of a particular region were like, no, we need to protect this name so that what people think they're getting is what they're actually getting. And there's a lot of that still. Like when we we kind of joke that the Champenois are, are extremely serious and almost aggressive, not almost aggressive, aggressive when it comes to other people using that word champagne anywhere in the globe for anything. Like you can't even buy nail polish that's called champagne anymore. And it's this protection of this name that plays into this sort of overarching thing that it's not about the particular growers or the particular producers, but it's about the reputation of the region.
0: I want to talk to you about that, protecting, because they do so much to protect the brand, the Region, but they also are very open to other ways of promoting the brands. For instance, there was a while, and I think it's still going on, where they were real big on, say, rappers mentioning champagne in their songs, mm-hmm. and it was increasing the. And they didn't see, but that's still as marketing
1: a, of their right, brand.
0: They saw that as an opportunity, and they ran with it. And the houses adopted. Some of them
1: did. Some of them had some issues, which
0: <clears throat> Yeah. So I so that was kind of where I was going. Yeah. So
1: no no no. I think that, a, that a, part of it a, is more like this is free advertising for us.
0: When some people like that, some people thought it was not right for the brand type of thing. Is that what yeah, you're saying? I think you, yeah. I think
1: that was that was part of it. Some sort yeah. of, you know, old fashioned we have our market and maybe we shouldn't be accepting of other people's uh, right. being in, involved in, in our in, in our brand? It
0: increased the awareness, for sure, right. of champagne.
1: And I only see that as a good thing. And I think that producers should see the opening of markets to new demographics and to new folks who maybe never would have tried these things before as a benefit to the brand. I think that take-all commerce kind of thing.
0: So there was no focus on touting houses? No. Was there focus on explaining smaller Production growers or co-ops or... Yeah, so
1: what was nice about the way that they arranged our visits was that we had four visits to to the four different types of production. So we had one very, very small grower producer who farmed all of his land biodynamically in one tiny little area. He only makes like 2000 bottles a year, like very, very small production. So we visited that size grower producer. We visited a small house. So small being a quarter million bottles a year, like, and that's, that's a small house. And then we visited a co-op, and then we visited one of the big, big brands. You know, one of the top five names that everybody would recognize. Was so the we co-op got to just see, a grower? Sort
0: of, hmm? he, he was the co-op just grower, not pr- pr- producing. No,
1: the, gr- the co-op was grower. Gr- they they grew and produced their own their wines. So okay. they had, I think they have maybe twelve. Uh, I forget now how many growers are in there They're their co-op. selling
0: their fruit to the big guys too. Correct. No,
1: um, no, they no? they're allowed to. But I think the majority of the growers fruit goes to the co-op. They're allowed to have other contracts with other producers, but far and away for those growers, most of what they contribute goes to the,
0: the co-op wine. And you said you tasted no red. So I'm, I'm assuming rosé yep. and regular champagne any rose, still yeah, rosé
1: and white champagne. Yep.
0: Any still wines or all sparkling?
1: Uh, all sparkling, but we did taste some wine, base wine right out of barrel, which I guess you could count as, uh, as still wine.
0: What's your impression of the wine before? before it's made into bubbles. not
1: done yet <laughs> yeah very acidic like um acidic just not um like too green like just not I could I I have some experience tasting wines out of barrel and wines before they're really finished fermenting so they definitely carried with them the uh the flavor of hey I'm not done yet
0: so and did you see the wine making process anything you learned differently on that as far as um, wine making in the
1: I think I was surprised by the amount of oak, even though a lot of it was neutral oak. There was still a, a lot of oak barrels that were in use. That's for the baseline. Everything base was wine. extremely clean, <laughs> which I guess is a nice thing. But, right. you know, I've been to some wineries that, you know, you walk in and you walk into the basement and you can just smell the fruit flies. But these were, maybe it was because it was winter, but it was it was very, very clean.
0: Explain the oak, base, the base wines, some no. go into oak? Uh,
1: yes. So the base wines no. were aging in oak for a little bit of time to give them some character and then some structure. And then they would be blended and then they would be put in champagne bottles and uh, topped up with a little bit of yeast and a little bit of sugar and then set to age so that those bubbles would be created in the
0: bottle. So talk about. The aging. You saw I'm sure, a ton of bottles in the cellars. Is it a law in Champagne that they have to turn the bottles by hand? No, or do they have gyro. They they no do there. Are, so
1: there are a lot of um gyro palettes. Um It's just it's too labor intensive with the, so, the millions and millions of millions of bottles that are produced every year to be able to do it all by hand. What I did find interesting was that, and I knew this ahead of time, that the some of the larger bottles, so like the Magnums and the Jeroboams and things like that, are too big to go in these palettes So those all have to be hand-riddled. And for our listeners who who don't know what I'm talking about, riddling is a process where over the, a slow course of like weeks or months, a champagne bottle is turned slowly so that it's sort of standing on its head so that all of the residual yeast and sediment from the bottle is in the neck of the bottle so that they can eventually shoot all that crud out and then recap it really quickly with a champagne cork so that you have the bottle the bubbles in the bottle but that you also have a nice clear bright wine and once upon a time this used to be all done by hand and now it's done by machine except for some of the more special bottles and then those, those really big ones, because they literally cannot fit into the machine. So people have to do them.
0: Interesting. You mentioned, Kim, that they, a lot of the focus was on the technical, some of the changes they're making. And we've seen Bordeaux is looking at different grapes, allowing different grapes. Is that something Champagne is doing now where they have to start focusing on maybe allowing other grapes because of climate change? This was
1: a little bit of a touchy subject when we were there. Really? So the answer is yes. There are some experimental plantings that are going on. There is a new grape variety that has been developed that is a very neutral grape variety that has been approved for experimental plantings if you follow certain rules and they can only be it can only be planted in certain areas that maybe aren't great for Pinot Noir or great for Chardonnay and then slowly you know experiments will be done about making wine with this grape and see how it goes but there doesn't seem to be very much buy-in but I have to say that our group of educators were we were very very on board with this uh, new grape variety uh, to the point that when When we 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 had these uh, competitions. So the educational organization has actually built all of these like fun, interactive learning modules. There's like games and like an online platform where you like compete against your friend, uh, you know, to who can answer the champagne question the quickest. And there's like a Jeopardy style game. And we would name our teams after the new grape. Much to the chagrin of uh, of the Champenois folks that oh. we were with, so we got a big kick out of uh, out of this new uh, new grape technology. So we Sounds we could have fun, fun too.
0: Is that something you'll take those game ideas back for education yes. for yourself? Yeah. Oh,
1: I can't wait. Yeah. Oh, nice. So I'm going to I'm going to be doing at least two classes for the trade, and I hopefully will be able to do um, a class or two for the public as well, where I'm going to use those. And there are some like icebreaker things, but just a lot of neat ideas about tasting and blind tasting and kind of preconceived notions about style and what champagne is. Yeah, just there's so many fun things that I feel like I brought back with me, and I met great people, and they were all really like top-class educators and writers and bloggers, and just everything. I felt so honored to be with I was with.
0: What a great! I mean, just hearing your excitement, someone who is excited about bubbly anyway to go. To something like this, and to get more excited, it, it's just a, it's amazing to hear Kim how you can learn something new all the time in, in this field, right? I mean, it's just incredible. Yeah. And
1: it, this was I, the perfect place to send me because yeah, I mean, I could go exactly. ten times and still be just as excited. So, so just yeah. a
0: couple, couple more things. Any surprises or unexpected things you discovered other than frog legs? Was there anything <laughs> that stuck out that you, one. you never um, knew or you never saw or
1: I was surprised by the innovation from some of the producers, especially some of the really long-standing producers. I was very excited that we visited Biakart Salmon, who I mentioned once before, the current owner. He's seventh or eighth generation. I think he's the seventh generation of the family to run the winery, to run the house. And even some place like Champagne, where they have hundreds of years of history under the same label, and you would think that they're the same wines, you know, over time, even some place like Champagne reacts to market shifts, and to changing taste and changing trends. So their wines have really undergone this style change over the last decade or two decades, even down to the labels are different. And they kind of look like their old labels had been, but they were sort of gussied up a little bit and changed just slightly. And they have a new one that has more oak on it, but it's not like big, toasty, crazy spice bomb kind of oak. It was just very delicate and refined. And just this idea that there are still changes happening in a place that you think of as fairly staid and old-fashioned, it really isn't. There's a lot of tradition and there are a lot of rules that need to be followed. But even within those confines, there is innovation and there is creativity going on. So I felt that that was very refreshing. And just to see that with younger people getting into the industry, whether it's their family business or whether it is bouncing around in the world of wine. I felt like everybody that we talked to who was under the age of 40 still came from some sort of wine tradition. Either, you know, they had a family member who made wine in a different region. And so then they went to school and now they're here. Or there's one young lady who she's from Champagne and now she works in Champagne and she's just like over the moon that this is what she does every day. And she's 29 years old. So it's just nice to see both the tradition, but then also that this is still... Or ha- is really a modern, vibrant industry.
0: And I saw that you brought back one of your favorites. I, I did. I brought can back Can you a tell the, the listeners the experience, how you did it? Did it go okay or as far as any tips for packing or when you're traveling <laughs> with wine, things like that? Yeah. So that. I planned
1: ahead. I had these packing sleeves that were like bubble wrap, but in the shape of a wine bottle. So you could pack your bottle of wine in this bubble wrapped thing and I brought home I only brought home a couple bottles of wine I brought home a special bottle for my son for his 21st birthday when he gets there from his birth year so I was super excited to find that and then just some things for some friends and I packed them in those bubble wrappy things and then I put them in my luggage surrounded by clothes and was just really hoping that nothing would happen in my suitcase and everything came home fine so I was a little worried (laughs) one of the things that we learned on the trip was the weight of a champagne bottle and how much, and we did this in the the context of the carbon footprint of the region and how, what the region is trying to do as far as environmental preservation and you know water preservation and making sure that the wine bottles maybe can be a little bit lighter so that their carbon footprint is a little bit smaller. And so we talked a bit about how the traditional champagne bottle has actually lost a few grams of weight because they're trying to be you know better for the environment. So as I got to the airport and I realized what I had packed, and I'm like, oh, I actually know how much a champagne bottle weighs now. Now, because that was part of our lesson, and there I'm like, cal- I'm doing math in my head <laughs> as I'm putting my my suitcase on the you know on the conveyor belt." Mean, like, okay, if a pint's a pound, the world around, and it's nine hundred and thirty grams for a glass for the glass of champagne, like, how much, how heavy is my bottle of champagne? So yeah, so math. There's still under math. The weight.
0: We under the luggage weight.
1: Yes, I was because I packed yeah. light. So because I was planning on bringing bottles home. So I'm like, okay. All right. (laughs) I have to plan.
0: Any other tips for our listeners about thinking about traveling the Champagne? Is it a thumbs up? Do it? It's a thumbs up.
1: Make reservations ahead of time because most of the places to visit will not take walk-ins. So you need to either email or, you know, go on the website of any particular house that you want to visit and make an appointment. Is that Um, because
0: of covid rules? No, no. I think it's just
1: just tourists. Yeah. And some places will you're going to get different treatments at different places. And I think it's it's hard to know. But if you have a favorite champagne and you really want to visit them and you are going to the region, I would say definitely make an appointment at some places that you would want to visit. And try things and don't be afraid if they talk about zero dosage will have absolutely no sugar in it and is bone, bone, bone dry or something that is a little bit sweeter. Just try stuff. Eat the local food. Go to the cathedral. Drink hot chocolate.
0: Yeah, Enjoy yourself. I was jealous before talking to you and still jealous, but I look forward hopefully getting an offer to go to one of the classes or Mm. taking up one of the classes, seeing what you learned.
1: I will save you a seat, Mark.
0: Well, thanks, Kim. I uh, I hope our listeners enjoyed hearing about thank your adventure. You. We can we get your excitement here is coming across. I hope yeah. the listeners. Well, thank are you, thank that. you
1: for dedicating an entire show to talking to me about my trip.
0: How could we not? <laughs> I mean, this is big news when the the bubbly queen goes bubbly to queen. Champagne. Everyone, we need to know. So
1: yeah, it was really wonderful. It was a great experience, and I'm really looking forward to sharing what I learned with everyone.
0: Thank you for joining us today on The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. We are a program that is supported by Franklin Public Radio. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at The Wonderful World of Wine. You can find Kim CommonwealthWineSchool.com. You can find myself at FranklinLiquors.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Wine Education. And our past episodes are on SoundCloud or iTunes. Cheers. Why?